Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone this morning. Glad you're here. It seems like every week uh, the world gets a little bit uh, more difficult, a little bit worse, and I'm glad that we have the truth of Scripture, the truth of the Lord to come to and to worship together and encourage one another in these present evil days that we live in. I think there is going to be a great, and and the scripture this morning bears this out, and I think there's going to be a great surprise to many people when they are resurrected only to stand before the judge and hear the things that they did in their in this life. Without, without Christ, there is no hope. Let's look at this passage this morning. We've been in John 5 uh, for a few weeks now, and we come today to, to verse 30. Let me just give a, just a brief catch-up where we're at here before we read the text. In in the passage, we have seen that Jesus has defended his deity with several unmistakable proofs. He claims that he is the Son of God, making himself equal with God in his person. That is, he is equal to God in essence. This was his first claim. Then he claims that he has the same works as God as the Father, making himself equal to God. And then he states that he has the same sovereign power as the Father to bestow life to those he chooses and to execute judgment on all those who do not believe and continue on in their sin. He has the power in his triumphant voice to resurrect everyone and judge them according to his own will and word. In fact, Jesus tell, Jesus says in John 12, verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. The words that I have spoken. It's the word of God that judges people. Through the Son of God. They are His words. Now essentially Jesus is saying that all these proofs of His identity come to play in five different ways. One, He is saying that in attacking me, which the Jews were doing, in attacking me, the Son, you are attacking the Father Himself. For the Son does what He sees the Father doing. He judges as the Father judges. He he cannot do otherwise. And neither does he desire to do otherwise. 
Second, the question remains, are you, uh, to these Jews, are you amazed because of this act of healing a sick man? This was indeed a great work, but a greater works will take place, which will follow, imparting life to those who are dead, both physically and spiritually. Just a few chapters later, we see Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, an unmistakable miracle of giving life to the dead. But here he is talking about not only giving physical life, but also spiritual life to dead people. (coughs) At the last day, and at the last day to those who are physically dead, and judging all men, both now and in return at his glory. Return, at his return. So Jesus was able to Give life to people who were dead as he lived on earth. He is still able to give life to the dead. And he is also able, he was also able to judge people immediately on earth. He read their thoughts. He told them their sins. He, he imparted that information to them. And he is, he will, there will come a day when they will stand before him and he will do the same thing. As, as they have been resurrected at judgment. Third, he might say, do you question how it is possible for me to impart life and to pronounce and execute judgment? I can do the former because the Father has granted me to have life in myself even as he has life in himself. So in the, in the latter, uh, as he, it is in his capacity as the Son of Man, he, he will give life to those who are physically dead to stand before him in judgment. This he does as the Son of Man. We talked about the Son of Man, Daniel chapter 7, where he, he's, the Son of Man comes, he has dominion over the earth, he rules the earth. He is the giver of life and he is also the judge. Fourth, the proper reaction, Jesus might say, to my words and works is not abject unbelief and hatred, which the Jews were displaying, nor even an attitude that fails to rise above amazement, but faith, faith which honors the Son even as it honors the Father. You see, when you honor Jesus, you honor God the Father. Number five, those who exercise faith in the Son do not come into condemnation, but even now are passed from death to life. Presently. It is not that we will have eternal life. We actually have it now. We have it now. In the great day of judgment, they they together with all the dead will be physically raised to stand before the king. 
But though all will be raised, there is a great difference between many of those who are raised. The quality and the character of the resurrection, that resurrection is in in view. Those who have done good, which is a reflection of their life in the sun, a reflection of their salvation, those that have done good will have a resurrection of life. Out of the tombs they will come and they will have a resurrection of life. But those who have practiced evil will have a resurrection of condemnation. The implication based on these facts is embrace the Son in faith and believe in Him. That's the implication. That is the only way to not be condemned. But like so many who are blinded by their sin and their hatred of God's righteousness, the Jews turned a blind eye to all these evidences and summarily rejected them, desiring to kill Jesus. His claims were something that no ordinary man could possibly uphold. Either he was God's only unique son, as he said, or he was the greatest imposter that ever lived, ever walked on earth. Subsequently, Jesus turns to some final proofs of his deity. If these, as though these were not enough, this is in this is these witnesses from verses 30 through 47 are witnesses that are true witnesses that they could that they could identify with now let's read verses 30 through 47 as for our text in this week and and possibly next week as well <clears throat> He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. 
I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? A lengthy passage of scripture, to say the least, and yet so full of truths that we need to understand and live in. In verse 30, Jesus offers a summary of the claims that he has made, being equal with God, a fact that the Jews clearly understood. We see it in verse 18, they understood it. In this way, the Jews were seeking the more to kill him because he was breaking this, not because only he was breaking the Sabbath, but that he was calling himself God, making himself equal with God. They knew what he was saying. There was not a mistake, no misunderstanding on their part. The summary contained that which the Jews held to be their own belief. A belief in God, Jehovah, Yahweh. Namely, that God would be the supreme judge of the world. But now Jesus has said that he was going to be the judge, making himself equal with God. Jesus never did anything out of his own initiative. Everything he did was in complete conjunction with the Heavenly Father. We see that in verse 19. The Son can do nothing on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. Accusing Jesus of doing wrong, then, based on these facts, would be to accuse God of wrongdoing. Since the son's actions were simultaneous with the father's. He makes further statement about his capacity to rightly judge based upon his equality with God when he says, as I hear, I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If Jesus' judgment was equal to that of God, then his judgment could not be anything but righteous and just. Because God's judgment is righteous and just. That means that all of those who will one day stand before him in judgment will receive only a just judgment. This was the message he was trying to get across to them. That he had the power to judge. And that if he judges them, it will be a just judgment. That means that all of those who stand before him one day in judgment will receive not only a just judgment, but they will also understand that they should have believed his words and received his mercy. Now their opposition and hatred will be clearly called up against them 
on the day of judgment, and they will not be able to escape. Now, the Jews of Jesus' day were no different than people are today. They, They hated Jesus because of his words, and people hate Jesus today because of his words. It's not, there's no difference. They don't want to deal, people to don't want to deal with God based upon His mercy and His grace. That's the bottom line of it. Because if they have to deal with God based upon His mercy and grace, they would have to admit their wrong. They would have to admit their sin and they would be required to repent of it. So in general, the sentiment of those who profess to believe in the existence of God is that he is fair. Have you not heard the statements? I'm sure you have. People would rather think of God as one who loves and is softly emotional concerning sin and wrongdoing. He doesn't particularly like sin. He's saddened by sin, but he would never punish anybody because of sin, because he's loving. You've heard people say it, I'm sure. God is love. How could a loving God condemn people and punish people? How could a loving God do this? Or they might say, I don't. I don't really care about God's mercy. I just want a fair shake. Well, a fair shake is what you will get. But it won't be in your think in what you're thinking. Or what people are thinking. This they say because they think that they can somehow squeak by. Because they're not as bad as other people. I'm not as bad as this guy over here. I mean, look at him. He's a drunkard and a thief and and he's he's had a dozen felonies on his record. I've never been in jail. I've never done blah, 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 blah. It goes on and on. Just compare, 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 compare yourself to other people. And this is what people do. And they think that God looks at them. They're really bad. So when he looks at me, I'll squeak by. What they don't realize is that the justice of God is what sends people to hell. Justice towards sinners never saved anyone, but only condemns them and withholds mercy. I guess a good illustration of this would be Sodom and Gomorrah. You've, you recognize, you know the story from Genesis 19. God told Abraham he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, that's where Lot lived, and Abraham's nephew and his family. So Abraham begins to plead with God. Well, what about the righteous souls that are there? Would you spare Sodom if there were 50 righteous? No. Well, what about 40? What about 30 or 20? And he gets all the way down to 10 righteous souls. And he thinks that surely there's 10 righteous souls in Sodom. And God, would you, would you destroy them if there's 
ten righteous souls there? And God said, I won't destroy them if there's ten. Well, God knew there weren't ten there. There was only four. But the people in Sodom were wicked sinners before the Lord. I'm sure they didn't think they were. I'm sure there were many in Sodom that thought, I'm not joining in with all that people do here in Sodom. I'm just, I just live here. I'll squeak by. But when God pulled Lot and his family out of Sodom and the, and the flames of fire and brimstone and sulfur, burning sulfur fell, every soul died and every building was burned up. Judgment came. The Jews have clearly stated that they don't believe Jesus' testimony about who he is. His statement in verse 31 tells it. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now that's that's a difficult statement. He is not saying that there is a possibility that he might be saying something false or that his witness is unreliable. That is not what he means. Because everything that Jesus said was absolutely truthful and absolutely honest and just. Everything. So what does it mean? It means that that his, his statement is from their perspective. He is looking at them and he is essentially saying, from your perspective, anything I say is not true. Because I'm speaking alone. You, th- you say I'm speaking alone. Therefore, it couldn't, I couldn't possibly be telling the truth. So as far as you're concerned, if I testify against myself, my testimony is not true. That's what he's actually saying. He's, he's looking at it from their perspective. The statement here. It's a different statement than is made in chapter 8. Turn back to chapter 8 if you would real quick. Look at verses 13 through 18. The same thing comes up. But here in chapter 8 it is a it is from a legal standpoint based upon the law. In chapter 5 this is simply a statement Jesus is making about their perspective not his own. Notice what it says in chapter 8 verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him. You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going, but you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is, for it is not I alone who judge, but... I and the Father who sent me. Again, very similar statements. Notice verse 17. In your law it is written the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So Jesus is saying in chapter 8. That if you want if you want to quote the law. Then... Go ahead. I have witnesses. So they're speaking in a legal sense there. Because of the standard that was set about by two or three witnesses. 
to substantiate all claims. Jesus had the witness of his father and many more to authenticate his words. But that didn't mean anything to the Jewish authorities. They were determined not to believe his testimony. We see it. We see it clearly in uh, verse 43. Where he says, I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. So they would believe other people, but they wouldn't believe Jesus. Now, why is that? It's because of their hatred of his words. He exposed their sin. He he told them that he was telling them that the, uh, all that of their religious beliefs were of no good. This would displace them. It would take away their power over the people. And they hated him. The Jews appear to be ones who hold to the letter of the law, but they're really not. They reject Jesus' testimony, but receive the testimony of others who have no witnesses. We see this distinctly acted out as Jesus stands trial on the night of his betrayal by Judas. The Jews employ false witnesses whose testimony was contradictory and conflicting. And yet no one raised an objection. Matthew 26, verse 59 and 60. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward. And they used that false, that false witness to condemn Jesus to death. The Jews weren't interested in justice or truth. They were just interested in their own agenda. Sounds like our day, does it not? And so they fabricated false accusations to have Jesus put to death. Now, in no way would, could we compare this to anything that's happening today. Except that this same kind of activity is going on all around us in our political system. Political leaders fabricate false truths, false truths, false scenarios, and they feed, feed it to the people. They feed it to our population. And you tell lies long enough, And people began to believe them. Jesus alludes to another witness in verse 32 who constantly bears witness of him. Some have been confused as to who this witness is. Um... But I would have you to notice in verse 32 where he says, There is another who bears witness about me. The words bears witness are in the present tense. Which means that there is a constant bearing witness. He's talking about the Father in verse 32. And that's substantiated in verses 36 and 37. Which we'll get to probably next time. 
Now, in verses 33 through 47, Jesus appeals to four other witnesses that validate his deity. The first of these witnesses is John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Christ, the Messiah. Notice verses 33 through 35 that John was born to be the one who would introduce the Messiah to the Jewish nation. If you'd flip back a page or two to chapter one, follow just some verses that we've already, that we've already looked at just as a reminder. Chapter one, verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out that this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I was talking about. He comes after me and ranks before me because he was before me. Verse 32, John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descending like a, from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. And I myself did not know him, but... He, He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, When you see the Spirit descending and remaining, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This is the Messiah, John. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. They all knew who John was. All these Jews would have been familiar with John the Baptist. He was the gnarly preacher from the desert. Who ate locusts and wild honey wrapped in a in a gunny sack? They had heard his preaching. They had observed his baptism. In fact, they even sent a delegation to John, questioning his ministry. And they asked him, chapter one, verse twenty-five: Why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to unloose or untie. Now Jesus didn't need the testimony of men to validate who he was, to authenticate his person or work. He makes that very plain in verse 34. But he offers John's testimony for the benefit of the people he's talking to. He offers John's testimony for their sake so that they would be saved. How would, how would John's testimony of Jesus being the Christ bring salvation to them? We must understand that John the Baptist was a very important and popular person in Israel. The people believed John to be a great prophet, and he was a great prophet. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, Who do you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. In Matthew 14, Herod wanted to put... John to death, but he feared the people because they held John as a great prophet. Matthew 21, the crowd was stirred up 
Because they, they held that John was a prophet. So Jesus is reminding these Jews of their own high regard for John. There was even a time when the Jews wanted to forcefully make John their Messiah. Jesus makes reference to this, their willingness to have John as their Messiah, in verse 35. He says, he was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice in his, rejoice for a while in his light. But when it became clear, when it became clear to the Jews that John would not adopt their religious practices, They quickly abandoned him. Turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Jesus speaking to the Jews about John. And this is the same, these are the same Jews in chapter 5 that you see throughout the scripture. They were the, the leaders, they were the Pharisees, probably some Sadducees. Chapter 7 of Luke, verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to see in the wilderness? A reed shaken by the wind? In other words, he's saying, did did you think by going out and listening to John that he was some kind of weak need uh, believe everything, pacify people kind of preacher? Is that what you thought? Someone who could be bent by just a breeze blowing? Then what did you go out to see, he says? Uh, a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing live in luxury as kings in kings' courts. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare the way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. And the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, Tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, having not been baptized by John. Why were they not baptized by John? Because John refused to baptize them. They wanted to be. They wanted to have everything so that they could say, we we followed John the Baptist too. But when they came, John said, you hypocrites, you, you painted tombs. And he refused to baptize them until they showed true repentance. See, there's something to this repentance thing. You don't hear much about it these days. That's why we try to be careful whom we baptize here. We, want, we don't want just a, 
word of mouth. Quick. Yeah, I'm saved. I want to be baptized. Now, okay, well, let's do it. We want to make sure that the person truly knows the Lord because sometimes you, you know, you can baptize people or allow them to take the Lord's Supper in the wrong way and they think, well, I'm, I'm okay, just like Dave said this morning. And that's not the case. The second reason that they, uh, they were refused is because John would not acquiesce to their religion. John would not enter into or be a part of their false religious system. Same things are still present today in the societies of men. People do not like to be shown that they are wrong in their thinking, especially when it comes to religion. They don't like to be shown they're wrong. Try it sometime. If you haven't already, just try to correct some wrong thinking with, with biblical truth and people and see, see how, see how it, what it gets you. This would mean that if they're wrong, it would mean that they need to admit they were wrong and repent of it. And it's the pride of man that keeps them from doing that. Now Jesus said all of this about John so that his hearers would be saved. John's message of repentance and faith was indeed the good news of the kingdom. So he points them to John's message. Not John specifically as a person, but his message. I say this to you so that you'd be saved. Believe what John said. Believe what John said about me and find in me eternal life. And John was right about Christ. No one is saved that does not confess their sin before God and repent of it. No one. But all that do, all that do confess and repent of sin, God saves and He forgives. And He bestows upon them eternal life in that very moment of faith. Now, there are other witnesses in this passage that Jesus gives, three others. We'll talk about those next week. Just remember that as you go about your daily lives, you can use the same kind of truths that Jesus used here with these Jews to tell people about Christ and about who he is. They may not like it. But whether they like it or not has no bearing on what they need. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you for the privilege of coming, of of worship, of the Lord's table, and of uh, the singing praises. And uh, Lord, we just pray that you would bless now this, this ministry of your word. Uh, these some are hard, some hard sayings, and yet you're the one who made them. You're the one who said them. This is your word, and I pray, Lord, that uh, you would use it to teach us and to 
and to uh, cause us to uh, to repent ourselves, to live a life of of repentance and uh, and confession of our need for you and and our need for forgiveness. Uh, Lord, we we thank you for your grace and for your mercy that you have given to us. You are a kind uh, and and loving benefactor to us. And we ask, Lord, that you would receive glory from this, for we give you our true worship this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, let's see. Let me make an announcement or two here before we go, and then uh, I'll have